Hello and welcome once again to Cave the Cross Apologetics. I'm Patrick. And I'm Tony. And we're at the penultimate uh, chapter for uh, John Frame's Apologetics, A Justification of Christian Belief. And uh, here, uh, we're, we're, the ball has been turned over. Uh, n- <laughs> no longer are we on the defense, but now we're on the offense. So That's right. uh, this one is called Apologetics as Offense. Uh, not to be offensive, but to uh, to kind of um, uh, provide the offense uh, of critiquing unbelief. And so um, so we this, get to take our shots with the ball. Right? right. And so this could be hard because, you know, un- unbelief in what? Unbelief in Christianity, unbelief in uh, deism. Uh, you know, uh, are, are we uh, are we critiquing only uh, unbelief in a uh, ethical issue? And so. Um, here uh, again, we uh, define our terms properly and and it really um, uh, hones the point of of where we want to go and w- uh, where Frame wants to go. And so uh, we'll um, figure out uh, what he is uh, critiquing as uh, as we go through this chapter. But uh, he starts off by saying, "Apologetics is not only defense but also offense, an attack by Christians against unbelieving thought and action." And so he goes on to say, <clears throat> as the apostle uh, puts it, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's Second uh, Corinthians 10.4 by the apostle Paul. And so um, he, he uh, th- this is one that we've we've covered before. And and we say that this applies not only to um, us calling unbelievers to take every thought captive, but also uh, for Christians as well. And so uh, this is where th- theology proper comes into play and uh, where our sanctification process uh, uh, w- will lead us as becoming more conformed to the heart and the mind of Christ. And so uh, th- this isn't uh, just uh, a, a a javelin that we hurl at at the other side, but this is one that we, we take up daily and, and follow Christ uh, with as well. But he says, indeed, as true in some other fields, the best defense is a good offense. That is, it could be argued that offense is the primary function of apologetics and probably yeah. one that I think most people kind of think about when they they know these terms and, and think about what apologetics does. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, he says uh, it's not enough for the apologist to respond to the unbeliever's objection. Right? In other words, defense kind of thing. Uh, he is called to turn the attack against God's enemies. And this is the role taken by the Lord himself. Uh, when Satan or his human associates bring accusations against God, God regularly refuses to answer the charge and brings ac- accusations against his attackers. And so he he lists several, uh, you know, biblical passages here. Genesis chapter three, you know, the woman thou gave me, and God just, you know, turns that right around. Okay, fine, but you're cursed. <laughs> Job 38, you know, if I could just talk to God, I would question him. And then God appears and God begins to question. Right? And, <laughs> right. so, and so, yeah, God kind of turns all of these things um, uh, on their head. And so he takes the offensive. And of course, because he is sovereign and authoritative and he's allowed to do that. He is the creator. So that's the point here that, uh, that I think uh, Frame is trying to make. Right, right. And uh, it carries on to the New Testament as well. And so we have already done much of the way of apologetic offense. Uh, in chapter two, uh, he indicated that the fundamental choice is between two alternatives, the absolute personality of Christianity and the absolute impersonal of every other system, the system that we have collectively described 
as the covenantal uh, wisdom. And so th those are kind of the, the, the two bases the, that we have, and uh, it's prevented, uh, presented as this dichotomy of uh, personal personality or impersonal uh, fill in the blank, uh, universe, uh, dispassionate, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, systems that, uh, that bring about uh, different uh, uh, belief systems. But he says that we have seen the covenantal wisdom cannot do justice to values and therefore cannot account for the trustworthiness of reason. So, you know, let's let's all come together and, and reason our way up to what we think it is. Uh, clearly, there's no God. Therefore, anyone who's, uh, uh, you know, a believer is irrational, uh, that they are not listening to reason. Well, well, let's first account for accounting of reason. So he says, uh, We've seen uh, in the past, and we've covered on the show as well, that uh, uh, unbelief has a difficulty with uh, doing anything other than just saying, well, let's reason. And so can you justify that reason? Well, uh, we just do it and it seems to work. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's not uh, that's not a justification for it. That's just um, a brute hard faith uh, in, in, in uh, the system that you want to use. Yeah, and notice he says here that, uh, you know, we have already done much by way of the apologetic offense. And so this is going to be a shorter chapter because, you know, he has dealt with uh, a lot of these issues already. He's already kind of attacked uh, the other other position. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as, as I was looking at this chapter, I said, wow, this is pretty short, but it's short because, you know, he's 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 done a lot of this work ahead of time. Yeah, refer to previous episodes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this inability corrupts uh, impersonal, uh, impersonalist ideas in every field of human thought. And so uh, what do we do from here? Yeah, good. And he goes on to say that in discussion, for instance, of the problem of evil, he mentioned the ad hominem, but nevertheless, a useful point that an impersonalist philosophy cannot distinguish good and evil sufficiently, even to the... Um, you know, to raise the problem against Christianity. So if you have an impersonal philosophy where there is no personal creator, then as he argued early on, I think in chapter two, he refers to here, uh, you can't have this issue of good and evil because there isn't any, you have to, you know, you have to have this kind of personality in order to have that. And that's what he's getting at here. So by impersonal, he means the uh, materialistic philosophy where there is no personal, nothing that's personal in the universe. And, uh, and you know, he's, he, as we saw last time, he talks about this ad hominem, you know, against the man attack with regard to the problem of evil. And he kind of somewhat dismisses it, but he says it's legitimate because in reality, there is no, you know, good and evil, and that sort of thing. It's just how I feel about things and, you know, an emotive kind of uh, perspective here. He goes right. on to say that, as we have uh, mentioned before, it's impossible to rigidly separate offensive from defensive and constructive apologetics. Negative criticism will not do much good, he tells us, unless at the same time we cogently present a positive Christian alternative. And so that's kind of what he's going to do here. Uh, uh, again, as I mentioned, you know, he's covered some of these things already before. Right, right. There, there's a reason that uh, he, he put, uh, I, I think, the, the gospel chapter uh, kind of early on, um, because that's uh, going to be a reference point that we're going to want to bring up as Christians. Hmm. 
Offense is certainly essential to apologetics in the Bible. We see over and over again how scripture goes on the attack against doubt and unbelief. Remember how Job wished to have an interview with God, but God surprised him by taking the role of the interviewer, the offensive position exposing Job's ignorance. That's uh, Job 38 and following. This was also important in Jesus' presentation of the gospel. In John 3, when Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, as suggested by the original Greek of verse 10, comes to Jesus by night, uh, evidently hoping to have a cordial theological discussion. Again, uh, it, we, we applaud Nicodemus for his courage, but also under the cover of night, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. small steps, small steps. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, mm-hmm. Jesus then sweeps away all the pleasantries and tells him that apart from the new birth, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Again, telling this to a Pharisee who knows the law, who should know the the, the path to God, who should be the one in the temple clearing it out uh, so that the Gentiles can come in, so that all nations can come in and 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 worship the one true God. So, uh, you know, uh, Jesus uh, it, it doesn't give partial points here. So Jesus dismisses Nicodemus' whole way of thinking and demands that it be rebuilt on an entirely different foundation. Again, this is where uh, uh, the, the the new birth uh, 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 kind of movement that I think uh, I think it was Jimmy Carter, uh, uh, you know, the, the born again Christian, yeah. uh, I think it yeah. made made popular in the United States of, as, as coining the term. Uh, and, and now uh, we don't want to associate with Jimmy Carter at all. But uh, <laughs> here, uh, you know, the 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 back to the not to the basics of of the law, but to the basics of life itself is what uh, Jesus is calling Nicodemus here too. so much so that Nicodemus has to kind of well, he, he seems to get trip up, tripped up because he's like, well, obviously you're not telling me to enter my mother again and, and, and be re- reborn again. What, what are you talking about? So he's, right. he's very confused. Right. He, he, but to, to, again, to his credit, he, he stays there, uh, stays with Jesus. And, and uh, you know, we get the John 3.16 out of, out of that, that uh, conversation uh, that's been exactly. so, so helpful so, at football games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so Frame is, you know, making the point here that Jesus goes on the offensive. Right. Even in this situation where it seems like Nicodemus has just come to ask questions, right? He doesn't he, he 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 doesn't allow him to do that. He just jumps right on the basic issue and he goes on the offensive uh with Nicodemus here. And so, you know, that's uh Frame is trying to get us to see that this is part of the apologetic process. Yeah. And we we see just do this a lot um, in public. Uh, you know, the 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 lawyers and the 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 Pharisees want to come and, and trap Jesus. And he goes, well, hold on. L- l- you answer my question first, or here, let me tell you about this. And you'll answer your own question that you should know. And so, you know, which person was more righteous, the, the, the Pharisee, the lawyer, or the, the, the half breed that uh, we walk around at great lengths, not even to, to tread on the sand that they walk on, because we have this uh, idea that, uh, you know, uh, a, a long time ago, they, they slighted our, our ancestors. And it's like, well, we don't want to say it, but also we'll, we'll say it. So here, Jesus, in, in a helpful way, it, it helps describe our offensive arguments somewhat systematically, and hence uh, the reason for this chapter that he gives us. So that's what he wants to get into here. And so the, the way he does it is he spends most of the time of this chapter on what he calls the unbelievers twin strategies. He says, um, you know, if we're going the offensive against unbelief. We ought to know more about it. Remember from previous discussion, he tells us that the unbeliever at some level of his consciousness knows God and knows the truth about God. You know, Romans 121. 
but the unbeliever suppresses the truth in unrighteousness, Romans tells us. And so he tells us that, uh, you know, he's trying his best to think and live as though the absolute personal God of Scripture did not exist. There are essentially two such ways that the unbeliever attempts to do this. He says basically these two ways are what he calls rationalism and irrationalism. Or he tells us to put them in a biblical categories, atheism and idolatry. So those are the twin strategies that he suggests that the unbeliever attempts to uh, to use. Now, notice he's not saying that the unbeliever is even aware of what they're doing. He's just he's just describing, you know, their particular approach. So we have this rationalism and irrationalism or biblically speaking, atheism and idolatry. And so he's going to spend now the rest of the chapter trying to flesh these this these this twin strategy out so that we can see how this works and how we should deal with it. Right. Uh, he gives uh, Cornelius Van Til credit by saying that uh, Van Til pointed out that the rationalist irrationalist tension began in the Garden of Eden. Eve would not take God's word as her ultimate authority. She looked at God's speech, Satan's and her own, as uh, though the, tr- the three were all equal. Uh, but that is to imply that there is no final truth about anything, which is irrationalism. Nevertheless, when required to choose, Eve claimed the right to decide for herself over against God, autonomous rationalism. He does, she doesn't even make mention to the serpent's uh, point of view. She just says, well, it looks good and it should be fine and grabs it. And from, from there, well, okay, if we become gods and, and uh, me eating this, this should be fine. And we see um, the, the, the outcome soon falleth. Yeah. The, he, uh, <clears throat> he says also that the, um, the rationalist, irrationalist dialectic of non-Christian thought bears on ethical reasoning as well as on thinking about other matters. Right. Non-biblical ethics often opposes, he says, absolutes in general, but they forget their opposition to absolutes when they propose their own fundamental ethical principles, such as love and justice, right? So I'm opposed to absolutes. There are no absolutes, but in my, you know, particular uh, position, right, or my particular pet issue, there are absolutes, right? So there's a, there's a problem. There's a fundamental uh, dichotomy. Mm-hmm. He goes, uh, gives us the example of Joseph Fletcher. <laughs> he says, um, this is an egregious example, by the way. He says in his book, Situation Ethics, he's, Fletcher, that is, says that for the situationists, there are no rules, none at all. Okay. Oh, short book. Yeah, short yeah book. that's right. Yeah, we can now we can move on. So that's it, right? But he tells us that uh, then, you know, in the same paragraph, Fletcher proposes a general proposition, namely the commandment to love God through the neighbor. Is there a contradiction here between no rules and the rules of love? Well, it sure looks like it, right? That's the point he's trying to make. And so Fletcher is a rationalist, he tells us, in rejecting all external ethical absolutes and an irrationalist in that he must cheat to make his approach intelligible. And so what he does here is smuggles in a single ethical absolute in the guise of an ideal, right? So there are none, but here's mine, right? This is kind of the, the, idea, the idea here. And so there's an irrationalist, rationalist kind of uh, problem that he's pointing out with Fletcher's um, ethics. Right. 
Well, in fact, the history of Western philosophy provides us with many examples of this dance between rationalism and irrationalism. We've covered uh, a, a good number of these. Uh, uh, Mitch Stokes' uh, How to Be an Atheist uh, book that we covered uh, that uh, I'll, I'll link to below uh, had a, a lot of these same types of quotes that that he would find and, and uh, described uh, people's basic philosophies who, who uh, you know, uh, people look to for um, as serious contenders for science and 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 uh, moralist and and uh, rationalist, and you're like, whoa, uh, you know, how can you hold that while also holding a non-belief? These seems either seem contradictory or this seems uh, something that you wouldn't want to say out loud uh, to uh, people at a party. And so um, uh, here he says, in ancient philosophy, the rationalist motif seemed to dominate the scene. In modern times, the uh, irrationalistic motif seems to be uh, largely in control, yet neither exist independently of the other. Uh, for example, Plato combined these motifs explicitly. He was rationalistic about our knowledge of the world of forms and ideas, but irrationalistic about our knowledge of the world of sense experience. His problem was Fitting the two worlds together. Couldn't do it. Yeah. And then he's, and he moves on. He says, postmodernism denies that there's any one set of rules, any meta narrative, is what he says, for finding the truth. There's, a, on this view, uh, a multitude of criteria held by different people, different groups, and different settings that may or may not be consistent with one another. And so the claim of objective truth in their somewhat Marxian view is an oppressive claim, he says. Uh, it amounts to oppression, males dominating women, whites dominating blacks, westerns dominating other cultures, rich dominating poor, and so forth. He says in postmodernists, what they want in, to be consistent, they have to deny objective truth, but they should abandon the attempt to persuade others of the truth of their position. In other words, if you're going to deny that there is no objective truth, that it's just, you know, relative in some kind of way, then you have to, uh, to be consistent, apply that same notion to your own position. And so if that's the case, then why should we believe what you say if it's just what you think, just like every other position is what they think, right? And so uh, they find this problem here. Now, and of course, we've seen this, you know, Piercy famously points this out in Finding Truth uh, that we looked at uh, uh, you know, a while back, but that's a good place to start with this particular Yeah, yeah, five, five points that uh, are, are fitted together really nicely at, um, at uh, looking at different worldviews. Um, uh, that's a, It's always a good primer that I, I point to uh, college kids that would come up to me in church and ask for a book recommendation for um, um, Kind of uh, uh, critiquing or looking at different uh, points of view, and uh, I think she does a phenomenal job in in that book uh, of of showing a process and and laying out the arguments quite well. Yeah, and, and notice the point here is that in order to make their case, they have to exempt their position. <laughs> right. And of course, that's where the irrationalism comes in. Right. Which is why I mean the 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 thrust of 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 this. Uh, uh, you know, uh, suppression ethics uh, uh, is the goal is to get power. And then once you get power, then you just make the rules and then you just say, no, these are the correct ones. But oh, hold on. I thought there were, weren't any meta narratives. <laughs> yeah. you know, if, if one suppression is the other, then, you know, why, why should, should 
pours uh, su- suppress the rich and and why not and uh, how come how come when uh power uh, uh is is obtained in those areas the the system ap- appears to be just the same type of oppression just with maybe different groups of people it seems like then there maybe is a, a meta narrative there or uh that's that's the the outcome of the world view uh that uh that uh, is held thank you and see you next time see you next time